Net Posse podcast, where we talk about technology and activism. I'm here today with David Robinson from Upturn. We're at the IO conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a conference about technology, art, visualization, data, technology, and activism. So I had caught a neat presentation that David gave earlier about his group and thought it'd be cool to have a conversation. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself, David? Sure. Uh, thanks, Drew. Uh, it's my first time here at IO in Minneapolis. Uh, so Upturn is a small consulting firm that's based in DC, and we have a totally uh, public interest docket. So we work with uh, civil rights groups and other sort of social sector organizations, and we do a little bit of work uh, with government as well. And we are dedicated to helping folks to claim a seat at the table in situations where technology is changing a policy issue that matters to everyone, not just to engineers. So an example might be something like predatory lending or civil rights, criminal justice reform, where if the police are using computers or if a computer's deciding you know, who gets a loan or who gets a job, those are traditional civil rights issues. But now you need sort of to have a nerd in your corner to really pull apart the technology that's driving some of this. Cool. Where do you come at this from? Uh, uh, what brought you to this? So actually, the story for me is kind of a personal origin story, which is that I um, have a mild case of cerebral palsy, and my handwriting is really uh, wobbly. And when I was a kid uh, in school, uh, I was a quote-unquote bad writer when that meant you know penmanship. And then I got a word processor in about fourth grade. and. It turned out uh, I, I really like writing, and it was this hugely empowering uh, thing for me. And so I've always had this vivid, I guess, vivid personal sense of technology as a tool for empowering people and making good things happen. And one of the things that was really striking to me about my own experience with that was that um, it wasn't new invention that really changed my life. It was a change in the rules. Computers already existed, but what changed that really made um, the world a lot better um, for me as a student in school was that the schools began allowing um, kids to have computers. The rules changed. And so I think what Upturn is about is making sure that when uh, opportunities are out there for technology to do good or for us to prevent uh, technology from having harmful effects that we try and line up the rules in a way that's going to make those things uh, take their best form uh, for people. So so in your consultancy you work primarily with public interest groups um, but so just to be clear is it a it's a private consulting firm is that right? That's right. Um, so what led you to take exclusively public interest clients? How did that come about? Trial and error, actually. So we sort of began with the idea that we would help law firms to you know, represent big companies that have privacy issues, and then we'd be able to do a pro bono practice on the side to do the work we really think is important. That's the public interest work. But over time, uh, with the help of the Ford Foundation and some others, uh, we were able to develop a docket of completely public interest work. And I do think that part of the reason that we're a, um, a consulting practice is because we really have a sense of our role being a supportive and collaborative role. So everything that we've been able to achieve has been in partnership with other organizations. And I think one of the things that we're able to do is to really be dedicated to helping other groups fulfill their goals, that we're really the agent of somebody else who's doing work. That's kind of been our approach so far. And I think, you know, 
we're constantly in conversations about what's the right approach and we're constantly sort of fine tuning our, uh, our approach. But I think in any version of what we do, it's really important that um, we're doing it in, in partnership uh, with the subject area experts who've always done, whether it's criminal justice or lending or whatever the area may be. So how does that work? How does that, how do you interface with these other groups? Well, so we have support from uh, some of the same funders as some of the major civil rights organizations. So places like the Open Society Foundation or the Ford Foundation. And over the last couple of years, we've been working intensively with a coalition of civil rights groups that's based at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, which is the oldest, largest, and most diverse coalition of civil rights groups uh, in the United States. And part of the way that this works for them is that when they get a grant from Ford, not only do they get financial support and other kinds of support from Ford, but um, they also get the opportunity to call on us when technology issues, to call on Updurn when technology issues come up that are, that are relevant. And so uh, we've worked on a string of issues, including online ads for payday loans, which Google recently announced they're going to uh, prohibit, which we were very excited to be able to be a part of the conversations that helped to spark uh, that result. That was a big story. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, actually. Um, uh, and we're very, you know, we're very pleased with how that how that turned out. What's the story behind that? Well, so uh, we wrote a report, I guess now um, uh, a year and a half ago, almost, uh, about how lead generation works online. So that's when, um, if you're interested in a payday loan, the uh, system will keep track of you if you're, let's say you're entering a search, like I need money to pay my rent on the web, uh, you know, on a, on a search engine, people who uh, are in the advertising trade will figure out how to uh, create an ad that most appeals to you as the, as the financially desperate consumer. Um, but then it turns out making the ad is one job and making the loan is another job. So the advertisers, what's called a lead generator, they will auction you off to whoever thinks that they can make the most money off of you, to whichever lender thinks they can get the most interest and fees uh, out of you. Uh, and so, and these are expensive ads. I mean, we're talking like 10 or $12 per click is what the advertisers pay for these. So, you know, it's a high stakes business financially you know, people have this idea of the internet as this place where there's no geography and where the same rules have to apply. And so if you have state rules, let's say, that protect consumers differently in different U.S. states, um, they have this idea you couldn't replicate that on, on the internet. But the truth is, is that things are much more advanced. And there's really this way where you can geo-target ads to each person. And that means that if you're running a big platform like the Google or Microsoft ad platform, it's possible to have different rules in Pennsylvania and different rules in Minnesota and really match the, the careful rules that states have for uh, protecting consumers. And so we were able to point that out in a report, which then opened the door for public conversation and actually also some, some quieter conversations with several of the operators of large search engines and other online platforms, where we were basically, there was able to be a discussion about what the options are and what the right ways are to uh, protect consumers. And the upshot of that, uh, as was reported in the, in the press, was that uh, uh, Google decided to uh, ban ads for payday loans uh, across the United States and had similar rules now wor worldwide that are coming in. Um, we should also say that Facebook uh, also now has a policy that is 
uh, prohibits uh, online ads for payday loans. And I guess, you know, from what does Upturn do or what's our role, you know, I think the, the through line there is we're really talking about a world in which, you know, the really important thing here is knowing about consumers and their needs and financial justice. But um, that's uh, not enough on its own in the internet context. You also need to be comfortable talking about here's how this online platform works and here's how we want to change it. And I think it's that catalytic ingredient that we try to bring to the party. Who are the people who do this with you? We have a great team. We're so fortunate. Um, so uh, Harlan Yu, my co-founder, holds a PhD in computer science. Um, my training is in law. Our original name for the firm was Robinson and Yu because we uh, couldn't uh, pick up uh, anything more, more clever and had to fill out the form and get started. Um, and then Aaron Rieke uh, is the third principal of the firm. He's, he came from the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, and has a background in uh, privacy protection and uh, has done a, a blend of legal and technical work there. Uh, Logan Kepke uh, works with us uh, as, a, as an analyst and we have uh, Miranda Bogan joining us in just a few weeks uh, who came out of a diplomacy and foreign, foreign policy background. So we'll be five people probably by the time folks are hearing this, this uh, podcast. You said something earlier that I want to ask you a question about. You said that when you're thinking about forming this, you, you were thinking, we'll do some of this uh, for regular private clients and then do some of it pro bono in the public interest. I'm curious about that. I think that I have this suspicion that it's difficult to, for folks doing technology to break out of that pro bono mentality of doing things on the side, um, doing a little bit of coding where you can, dropping in and dropping out of organizations. How did you come to the decision of doing that full time? How does that fit with what you've done in the past? What are your thoughts on that? I think this is a really great question because I think it's easy to do a little bit. And um, what ends up happening is if you're mainly doing something else, I mean, I think people, especially who are very good at what they do, um, tend to be very absorbed in whatever they are primarily doing. Um, and so it becomes very difficult for people to really give their first best effort to a public interest project if they also are in a corporate uh, context. Of course, there are happy exceptions to those, uh, to those kinds of rules. But I think in general, for the, for the most part, you end up in a world where um, it really helps if you can focus totally on a public interest goal. And so for us, I think over time, it sort of naturally evolved that we wanted to have, be the kind of place where um, really you could focus totally on what you're doing that's a public interest goal. Before this, I was uh, in an academic setting doing research at uh, Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy. That's where Harlan and I first met. And then we decided to start the firm uh, together. And I think another thing that I'll say that's important about this is, um, you know, I think a lot of public interest organizations operate on a sort of unfortunate financial model where they underpay people and people are able to work there for sort of only a short part of their lives, like people who are just starting out and whose like financial requirements may be less because, for example, they may not have a family that they're helping to support. Um, and I think it's a real 
there's this temptation to fall into the idea that sustainable talent is cheap. And I think the cost actually of that, um, of that model is considerable because you don't have people able to accumulate more experience. You have um, more turnover if you're not able to do something that really sustains someone for a, you know, a sustained run of their career. And so, I mean, we're new enough that it's hard to say whether or not we're able to be successful with this. But I think having started in 2011 and certainly coming up on five years myself, I think, you know, the hope is this can be a longer term thing for people. Um, and I think if you look at it in terms of dollars per hour uh, that end up being, you know, spent to give someone a sustainable salary, it can be more than you might want to by default. Um, but if you look at it in terms of the amount of impact per dollar that you're able to achieve, I think part of our our sense of things is that um, having something that is sustained over a longer period really has better returns. To think that out for a second, there's so there's five of you working on this full time. Mm -hmm. When you're up against really big corporate interests and they have hundreds or thousands of people that work on technology or law and some that work at the intersection of the two, that seems like a real David and Goliath scenario to me. Well, um, I'll, I'll be happy to see it that way. But I, I, I want to ask, like, do you think that this model will allow the public interest to triumph over the public interest or the private interest? I mean, I have to say that I'm not a person who sees it as a dichotomy between public and private interests. I think there are, I mean, I think there are some situations where that's exactly the right way to see it, but um, I would hesitate to generalize about the public interest and private interest always being uh, at loggerheads with each other. I, I really think a lot of the art of what we're able to do as in, you know, in the Washington situation in particular is really look for win-win situations. And I'm, I, and I, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that that's the only kind of social change that we need or that it gets the whole job done. I don't believe either of those things. I think we need more systemic change as well. Uh, and that, you know, history teaches us that driving for social change, it's, it's valuable to have complementary different levels of how aggressive folks are, how much and what kind of change they're seeking, uh, how sort of uh, compromising or how sort of collaborative they are with other interests in the, in the sort of scheme of things. But I think, you know, one thing you can really do is help to create situations where people see the problems clearly. That is something that I think we're really able, I hope, to do. You know, I used to think that policy all happened at the line of scrimmage, and it was like trying to get votes for your amendment or trying to get a bill passed. And actually, uh, the more I work on this, the less I think of that as being the right way to look at it. I think that by the time something is about to happen and we're debating the details of how it'll be implemented, um, there's already been all this structuring that's gone on. And we have this pretty narrow set of like, what are the range of reasonable seeming outcomes that might happen? And I think the role that Upturn is involved in and that a lot of our conversations around data and discrimination and civil rights, a lot of that stuff is about drawing lines on the field that will one day be the line of scrimmage, but that are not now. This is much more about like, where are the goalposts? What are we even gonna consider reasonable for fights that might happen in five or 10 or 15 years? Um, and with that, I think, you know, um, speaking persuasively, being clear and having reality uh, on your side um, are really helpful. And, you know, the extent of 
having a lot more, you know, organizations, I think, find it very hard that are larger to speak clearly. There are a lot more incentives and a lot more complicated sort of um, uh, trading off that they have to do. And we certainly have seen this in collaborating even very successfully and very happily with colleagues in larger organizations is that like, it takes them a long time to say or do much of anything because it's like trying to, you know, shift a giant cruise liner. And I think at our best, you know, we're like a little tugboat and, you know, we're not gonna drive everything that happens, but I think we can have, if we pick our points of intervention carefully, it's possible to have a big impact. So tell me about those, like thinking ahead 5, 10, 15, 50, 100 years from now, if you could like wave a magic wand and have those lines drawn out, what the acceptable frame for dialogue is, what would those, what would those things look like in 50 years from now? I think one of the big ones is to really say that when computers make a decision, I think right now we have a very strong cultural presumption if you were to look on media and at what an American sort of reader of the news believes when they hear about a computer making a decision, they sort of think, oh, that's objective or that's fair, or at least it's more objective or more fair than what would sort of happen if a person made this decision. And I really, um, first of all, um, I think that's false, right? I think that um, computers seem more fair because, you know, there isn't that same sort of psychological element, but often it's, you know, it's really like holding up a mirror to the world around us and the biases that are in the world around us are going to be reflected in that mirror. So if you have police that have been differentially arresting communities of color, and then we're using that to predict where to send the police tomorrow, well, sure, the computer isn't racist, the computer is just doing arithmetic, but those outcomes are going to be racist because the inputs uh, are. Is what is what can easily happen and so i think you know trying to get people to interrogate what a computer does and really ask what it might have absorbed and whether that matches our values that to me is the core of what upturn is in concert with all of our allies and friends in the field i see that as the core of what we're trying to achieve is that when someone says okay here's a new automated decision that's important that's shaping someone's life there isn't this presumption anymore this unearned, in my view, patina of objectivity or fairness surrounding a computerized decision. And I'll say relatedly, there's been a lot of concern, you know, recently about like, show us the algorithm, give us transparency around the procedure that is used by a computer to make an important decision about who gets pulled out of line at the airport or about, you know, uh, who gets into college or other important things. And I think the algorithm is, um, is important, but uh, it's only one piece of the story. I mean, with machine learning, the rule of decision may be changing every every few minutes, and so it's hard. And it's also inscrutable, right? It's so complex that you know Google can't give you a, a clear view of exactly why a given search result ranked first, right? It's 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 not. It doesn't fit inside one person's mind what all those factors were. Um, and beyond that, really, when we hear algorithm, it's just a pattern finder. It's looking for patterns. It's looking somewhere in particular for patterns. And the really important question is, where is it looking? And where are those patterns coming from? And what kind of data is it that it's based on? How is that data generated? And I think those are the sorts of questions we've got to get people asking in the future. And so one last question, with that in mind, if that's the goal that, that you want to get to within that time frame. From the world that we're in right now to that world, do you have some ideas of what could bridge that gap? What gets us there? That's a really great question. And I mean, that's sort of what keeps us, that's what keeps us busy is pondering 
what are the right ways to do that? I actually think that, I mean, things like are happening here at IO at this festival where you have interactive visualizations and even games that allow people to play their way through various things and see how small biases can magnify and amplify. I mean, maybe we can even give people a link. There was Nikki Case gave a talk earlier uh, at the beginning of our conference, I did this great thing called the parable of the polygons, where um, it basically was, it's, it's uh, squares and triangles living together, and they're all a little bit shapist. And they only, they don't want to be in a tiny minority of, of triangles in a neighborhood of squares. And so, you know, if they're way in the minority, they'll move around. Um, and as you watch that play out across a huge, you know, across a city as neighborhoods form of, of, of triangles and squares, what you find is a great deal of segregation coming from even minor preferences. Um, and I think, you know, that's a playable game that lets people get, get a sense for how those kinds of biases play out. I think that's an example of something I'm hoping we'll see a lot more of, which is interactive things that immerse someone, that it's not just a viewer of someone talking to you about how bias um, uh, comes out in the world, but really it's about seeing how even your own reasonable um, choices can really have surprising impact on the world um, around us. And I think, you know, that's, that's, that's one piece. And I think, you know, a second piece is we need code literacy for people and also engineering literacy, which is in my mind, not exactly the same thing. So it's not just about learning to code. It's about learning to think like an engineer. Um, and a perfect example of that is, you know, Nikki made one game that was about showing how emergent behavior can have um, surprising effects in housing, but also then turn that into a system that lets anyone else make a game that can show emergent behavior in other contexts, right? Because this sort of abstraction of the game properties, and you can apply that to other situations where data leads to bias and give people other illustrations without having to reinvent the wheel of how the system works underneath. I think those kinds of things of helping people to reason like engineers, that's another you know, big piece. And thirdly, I mean, I guess I just hope that as we all grow up increasingly and our children, you know, grow up with more technology that just works and sort of seems magically to just get to the right answer and doesn't require us to look under the hood as much. Um, I'm hopeful we'll be able to sustain a culture of inquiry and, and, and really kind of working with the nuts and bolts, um, even when that doesn't automatically seem necessary. Cool. Well, thank you for your time, David. This was a a great interview. Um, uh, any shout outs, any, any links or anything that you want to uh, share? Sure. So, um, gosh, uh, Team Upturn has a website uh, and also Equal Future, which we have on Medium, which is our weekly uh, update on technology and social justice. We'd love to share that with folks. There's an email, uh, weekly email that folks can sign up to uh, if they want. And, uh, you know, uh, my Twitter handle is DG Robinson, and I'm always uh, glad to talk to folks.